Well, good morning, everyone. Seasons greetings to you. Please bear with me as I move the furniture just for a moment. Um, okay. Uh, I'm working on the assumption. I'm working on the assumption that um, at least most of you have seen or at least know of uh, the quiz show Family Fortunes. That you've you've you're aware of how it works. Uh, so two teams, usually two families, compete against each other. And the way they earn points and get into the final round to win prizes uh, is that they've got to guess the results of a survey, okay? Uh, And usually one representative from each team comes forward at the beginning of each round to kick it off. Uh, So they survey 100 people, uh, ask them all the same question, and then the name of the game is to guess the most popular answer, And so at this point, I'm going to invite two people at total random uh, to join me. Um, And it's just unfortunate if you're sitting near the end of a row. Uh, Eddie, sorry, Eddie, if you could join me just for a moment. Yes, Eddie, you, Eddie. (laughs) And perhaps Jennifer Harvey, if you could join me. So we don't have a buzzer. We're going to play it just for fun. I'm sorry, guys, there are no prizes this morning, we're going to play it just for fun, and we have no buzzer, we have no buzzer, so really the first person to grab the, <laughs> <laughs> let the games begin, um, first person to grab the, the elf on a shelf here for us, okay, uh, and the question that I asked uh, on our little email, uh, we didn't quite get a hundred, but we got, we got enough, we got a w- nearly a hundred was if you were to describe Strandtown Baptist Church in a word or a phrase, what would it be? Cool. Yeah. What Family. Family. Okay. Let's have the results of our answer. Okay, here are the top four answers as they came in. So uh, 11% of the answers said biblical, spiritually nourishing. Uh, number three, third most popular answer, encouraging, supportive, 15%. Number two, friendly and welcoming, 15%. Number one, at nearly 50%, family. Home, we have a clear winner. Thank you very much. That's it, that's all. Thank you. Okay. Um, um, there's There's our results. Uh, why do I do that? Why do I do that? Uh, why do we think about what would describe us as a church this morning? Well, as we come to this last section, these closing greetings, um, what initially seems like an obscure list of names, uh, random people that we've never heard of before, um, I actually believe that what you have here is a little snapshot, a little snapshot, if you look carefully, into what the life of the church was like at Colossae in the first century. Uh, This little church that was planted uh, a few years by this stage when Paul writes to them, we've been studying through this letter in in this term, uh, and here we see uh, how the teaching, how the teaching that Paul is reminding them of in this letter had affected them and shaped them uh, as a church family. Uh, we, I want to just uh, look at a few of the details this morning. And uh, 
what, what we actually see when we look at this little section, although it initially seems obscure, I admit, um, it actually is a really helpful summary of some of the biggest ideas that have been running all the way through this book. And what I, what I suggest to you this morning is if you were to do that survey that I did with, with our church family here this morning, uh, here are the three top answers that you would have got, the three things that define them as a church, the things that spring into their mind when they think of Christ Church Colossae uh, in the first century. Uh, first, they saw themselves as part of a church family. The second thing we see is that they saw themselves as partners in God's work. And then the third thing that defined them as a church is that they were prayerful. They were prayerful. And as we come to the end of our year uh, and we look at the, the, the opportunities, the, the cares of a year to come, it is my prayer that actually we become more and more uh, like the church in Colossae in the first century. I want us to take us through these three headlines, these three features uh, of the church in Colossae then. Uh, in turn. First, part one, uh, they saw themselves as part of a church family. Uh, as you read through this, you, you see this language occur again and again, uh, just in verses seven to nine, should appear on the screen there. Uh, Tychicus uh, will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, faithful, trusted, faithful minister, sorry, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances, that you may be encouraged uh, in your hearts, he is coming. Uh, he is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. And then down in verses fourteen and fifteen, we see the same family language again. Uh, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha uh, and the church uh, in her house. Christianity, at its heart, is not a set of statements that we ascribe to. It's not a set of doctrines and teachings that we believe. Uh, at its heart, Christianity is about God's kingdom. It is about Christ and his people. Christianity at its heart is all about people. It's about people. Uh, and we see here that, that people and friendship are absolutely vital in Paul's thinking. And so any church, if it is to be an authentic church, a real, living, vibrant church, uh, relationships should be at the center. Relationships are key. Uh, and in this little section, this little list, we see first, Paul has really deep relationships. And then secondly, we see that he's really broad relationships. First, we see that he's got really deep Relationships And Paul stresses the depth uh, of his relationships uh, in a number of ways in this little section. First, the amount of space that's given. This is a very short letter. It's only four chapters long. Um, but if you do the maths and you add up the number of verses that are dedicated to these uh, greetings and exchange of news, it's almost an eighth of the letter. A huge amount proportionally of the letter is dedicated uh, to, to greetings and exchange uh, of news. And I, I think that's just a first little hint just how crucial Paul views relationships 
uh, in the life uh, of a local church. And, and I do think it is a signal, perhaps, of uh, our individualistic culture. As I was preparing for this talk, and I've, I, I read through the commentaries and read through uh, various books uh, and then listen to various sermons, uh, as I've listened to some sermons from other evangelical, Bible-teaching, Jesus-loving churches uh, in our province and in the UK and in America, uh, I've been shocked, actually, how many times this little section is just completely skipped over, completely ignored. Uh, It's almost as if it's viewed as the wrapping paper to be ripped off and discarded for the real good stuff, uh, the theological weighty stuff uh, in the middle. I don't think Paul would view uh, this section in that way at all. Um, I think we see Paul values and his culture values people and friendship more uh, than we do. It's a challenge for us. As you read through this this little section really quickly... You can't help but spot the incredibly warm, affectionate language that he uses. Uh, He describes uh, Tychicus, who will be delivering this letter, and Paul's fellow traveler, uh, Onesimus, the slave. Uh, He describes them both in verse verse 7 and verse 9 as dear, beloved brothers. A little later, uh, he describes Luke as... Uh, his beloved friend. This is the language of love and affection. Uh, This is language that is warm uh, and deeply committed. The third little feature, I think, that stresses the depth uh, of the relationships that Paul has with these people that he mentions here is just in what is initially quite a cryptic verse. Uh, It's down there in verse 17. Tell Archippus, see to it, that you complete the work you've received from the Lord. There you go. God's given you something to do. How about you go on and do that? Okay? And it leaves us with all sorts of questions. Who was he? What was he supposed to do? And why was he dithering and not doing it? You know, we get none of those questions answered. But I think what we're meant to see here is uh, not that Paul is ordering this poor guy around, I don't think we're meant to see that Paul is interfering in his business uh, or Paul is arrogantly telling him what to do. I think you're meant to catch a glimpse that Paul had the kind of deep relationship with this guy that he could speak words of encouragement, yes, but also speak words of challenge when he felt it was necessary. He was secure enough in the friendship that he could say stuff like this. Um, In Proverbs uh, chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, we read these words, Better an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. That sounds the wrong way around, isn't it? It should be the wounds of an enemy, but a friend multiplies kisses. But actually, that's exactly right. If you are a good friend, sometimes what you need to do is say words that might actually be initially painful, but will be for their good. Now, before I say another syllable, um, it is worth noting that there are some people, we all know them, who seem to view themselves as having a ministry of rebuking. You know, that's their thing. 
They just feel they need to give people both barrels of the truth every so often. Uh, maybe they're a keyboard warrior. Uh, and they just give a strongly worded email. Uh, that's not what Paul is advocating here. That's not what Paul is doing. Uh, I think we, won't want, we all recognize that the strength of your words should be proportional to the strength of your relationship. You can only say the hard words if you've got a good relationship. And I think that's what we're meant to glimpse here. Uh, Paul is secure enough in his friendship that he can speak both words of encouragement and words of challenge. And if you're a good friend, if you're a good friend, you will have the compassion and the care to speak words of encouragement. But if you're a good friend, you'll also have the courage to speak words of challenge where necessary. And if you're a wise person, you'll appreciate it in the long run. What we see in this little section is that Paul has deep, passionate relationships uh, with these people. Second, he has broad relationships, broad relationships. It's, it's actually a beautiful thing when you look through it, uh, just to consider just the, the, the array of the committed relationships, the diversity of relationships that the Apostle Paul enjoyed. Um, so he mentions Dr. Luke, or, uh, just after he's mentioned the slave Onesimus. He mentions uh, three Jewish friends, uh, Aristarchus, uh, Mark, and Jesus, a.k.a. Justice. And then he goes on to mention then three Gentiles, uh, Epaphras, Luke, Demas. There's a whole bunch of men in this list, but also there's a woman, Nympha. And so we see the Apostle Paul has a breadth of relationships that cross ethnic, gender, social divides. And I think as we look through this list uh, and see the depth and the breadth of these relationships, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised because they're a church. Churches are supposed to be like this. Uh, and what Paul is saying here and what Paul is describing here actually fits really well with what we've been studying uh, as we've been looking through the letter. Paul has been reminding them in this book uh, of Colossians that when you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, when you turn from your old way of life and put your trust in Jesus and you bet everything on him, Paul has been telling us again and again, you are united to him. You're united to him by faith. What is true of him becomes true of you. Uh, where he goes, you go. Uh, his privileges become your privileges. You are united to him. But Paul has also been clear that when you're united to Christ through faith, the byproduct of that is you are really united to the other Christians who have also put their faith in Christ. So much so that you become one body. One body. That's the image Paul uses again and again, expressing the idea of this interdependent relationship that you now have with other Christians. We see it uh, right back at the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 18. And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body the church, uh, on down in verse uh, 
chapter 1, verse 24, Paul has been describing his work, his work in getting the gospel out to, to uh, a world that doesn't know anything about him. Uh, he describes his labor as being motivated by, for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so, uh, if we are really uh, in this interdependent relationship with each other, united together, uh, so, chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since you are members of one body. Uh, you were called to peace. And so we are united to Christ by faith, which means we become one family, which means we all have an equal footing and an equal share uh, in the church uh, of the Lord Jesus And so in chapter 3, verse 11, this is how Paul expects church to be uh, here then. In in the church, then there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, as a church, we are not just a social club. We are not just a common interest group. Uh, like fans of a football team. Uh, No, no. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, we are united to him. We are united to one Savior. We are all indwelt by one Holy Spirit. We all call upon one Father. We are family. I don't know how you feel about that as you look around, but that's the reality whether you feel it or not. We are family. Uh, And because we are family, then we need to work hard on fostering, building up deep and broad relationships. And if we are to have deep and broad relationships, it's going to require effort, however. It's going to require effort. To have the kind of relationships that Paul describes here requires more than just friending someone on Facebook. It requires more than following them on Twitter. Uh, it requires um, an investment, an investment of our time, an investment of our interest uh, in the lives of those around us. Of course, we're going to be friends naturally. We're going to gravitate towards some people and not others. We're going to be closer to some and not others. But, but, if we're to have relationships like this, if we're to be a church like this, it means that we are to be gentle and patient and kind towards everyone in this church congregation. Of course, if we're to have relationships like this, it requires and involves more than just two hours on a Sunday though, doesn't it? We'll never have relationships like this if this is our only experience of church. To have relationships like this, it requires that we are meeting during the week. uh, That we are meeting uh, in life groups. uh, That we are meeting in ministry teams. That we are willing to be open with what's going on in our lives. That we are willing to show interest in what's going on in other people's lives. It means it involves, at the very least, showing hospitality, opening up our homes. Actually, in Northern Ireland, I don't think, if I'm honest, we're very good at that. We're good at the chit-chat on a Sunday, good at the banter, uh, but we're not actually very hospitable at all. We're not good at having people into our homes. That's our, 
That's my castle. Kind of lift the drawbridge when we go in there. Uh, We need to be more hospitable, I think. We need to be able to show practical help when we discover the needs uh, in the lives of people around us. We need to be inclusive, looking out for those who are on the fringes of things uh, in our church family and to be keen to invite them in to be fully part of the life of the church here. To be church is to be part of a family. That's what it means. Second, they viewed themselves not only as part of a church family, they viewed themselves as partners in God's work. Partners in God's work. Uh, Again, in verses 11 and 12, where he mentions Aristarchus, uh, Mark, and Jesus' justice, uh, he says... They are the only Jews, my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. I think the key phrase here is they are fellow workers uh, in the kingdom of God. If you had asked Paul, what is is his life about? Uh, He would have been very clear. He would have been able to answer that question in a heartbeat. Uh, We see it back in chapter 1, verse 23. He talks about the gospel you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. My aim in all of life, my purpose in being on this earth uh, is to announce the good news about Jesus to as many people as I can. Paul was a traveling preacher, a church planter. Uh, He had a passion that people were transferred, to use his language in verse 1, out of the kingdom of darkness um, into the kingdom of light. That they were reconciled to God, that they knew forgiveness for their sins uh, and were able to meet God prepared and were able to enjoy a relationship with him now. But I think we often portray Paul as this tough, heartless loner, lone ranger, uh, who was just getting on with the business of getting the good news about Jesus out uh, and didn't really need anybody else. Here we see in this little section that he really did. He really did. So he describes these uh, other people, uh, particularly these three other Jews, as they have proved a great comfort to me. You see, the job of getting the good news about Jesus out wasn't a popular job. It wasn't a well-paid job. In fact, it brought lots and lots of difficulties into Paul's life. Uh, As a traveling preacher, as a church planter, it had a massive impact on him physically, uh, a massive impact on him emotionally, a massive impact on him spiritually. And he needed the help, support, and prayers of others to keep him going. Paul could never have achieved all that he achieved on his own. Impossible. And so right from the very first century, right from the very birth of the church, we see that this job of getting the good news about Jesus out is never just the job of paid professional Christians. No, it's a shared task that we are all together to play our part in. And I think that's incredibly challenging uh, for us here uh, in Strandtown Baptist. Uh, you see, nothing's changed. 
our commission is the same as the, commi- the, the charge and commission given to everyone on this list to invest our time, uh, our talent, our energy in getting the good news about Jesus out to a world that is lost and a world that is needy. And so while it was really encouraging on our little list to see things like family, friendly, encouraging, that's great. And I I want to praise God that those were the sort of things popped into your mind uh, as you thought about Strandtown Baptist Church. But the danger with that kind of list is that it's quite insular, isn't it? It's not really outward looking at all. It's all about us and how comfortable and nice it is to be on the inside of things. You see, it's wonderful to have close relationships, but the danger is we become cliquey. Paul shows us here, no, 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 we are all on a mission. We are all on a mission. Being outward looking to take the good news of Jesus to a lost uh, and needy world. And so we need to be asking ourselves the question, how can we be more outward looking? How can we be more active uh, in the task that God has given us to do? You see, it's so easy. It's so easy. I know this all too well in my own, looking at my own heart. It's all so easy just to get distracted with the regular legitimate responsibilities of life. To just get caught up in providing for me and my family, to focus on my career, to focus on paying the bills and planning the holidays. So much so that there's just, when you throw in a a hobby or two, there's not much time for anything else, is there? Again, we need to be reminded that this is the urgent task that we have all been given We might not all be traveling preachers and church planters, but we can all be involved in a whole host uh, of different ways. And I was just reminded of a story just this week as I was preparing this, um, the story of John Harper. Any of you know John Harper? Some of you might have heard of him. John Harper was a Scottish preacher uh, who was invited to go over and preach at a mission uh, in Chicago. Uh, but the boat he got over was uh, a famous and tragic one. It was on the Titanic. Uh, and so he was on the boat on the 15th of April, uh, 1912, when the boat sank. And as he was struggling in the water, in the icy water, what did he do? Was he feeling sorry for himself and wallowing in self-pity? Was he cursing God for allowing him to get in such a terrible situation? No. What Eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses have reported that with the last ounces of his strength, he was swimming to survivors and urging them to put their trust in Jesus. It was his first and urgent thought. The truth is, none of us know what's around the corner. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that is all our urgent task with the people we rub shoulders with who are not prepared to meet God. And Jesus, the most loving man who's ever lived, was consistently clear that to meet God unprepared and unforgiven is, like to cl- is something similar to, the, to climb into the core of a nuclear reactor without a protective suit. 
And yet, wonderfully, we've got the solution. There is a message of reconciliation and forgiveness if people would hear and respond. But not only is the task urgent, ironically, these two things are connected, our our partnership and our, our deep relationships, because it's ironically... Uh, We see this again in these letters. Uh, Ironically, it is when we sacrifice and serve together for the sake of the gospel, working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, to get the good news about Jesus out, whether it's committing to be involved and serve on the Alpha Course, whether it's uh, being involved with, with TOTS or Extreme Sunday School, whether it's involved in Friday Extra or Encounter or planning various events that as a church we run. When we do that side by side, what happens is we grow in love and affection for the person that you're working with. That's what happens. As we partner together, our relationships deepen uh, and grow. This was a church then who were, saw themselves as a church family who had deep and broad relationships, who saw themselves as partners uh, in the gospel. And then lastly, they were a church who were marked out by prayerfulness, prayerfulness. Paul begins this letter with prayer. He begins this whole section in chapter 4 by urging them to pray. He finishes off the letter by saying, remember my chains. Why? Just bring into your mind my chains. He wants them to pray for him in prison. The whole, whole section is bookended by, by prayer, a call to prayer. And then in the middle, we're given a model of prayer in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you. Some of you who've been with us in our series of studies uh, right from the beginning might remember Epaphras. Epaphras was the man who had heard Paul preach probably in Ephesus, who had traveled home and shared the good news about Jesus that he'd heard from Paul. And some people had been converted and a little church had been planted. Uh, Epaphras, uh, we know from Philemon, the next little letter, uh, verse, um, verse 23, uh, that Epaphras is with Paul in prison, whether he's a fellow inmate or whether he is popping in every day to supply Paul's needs, we, we don't know. But either way, he is separated from them. Uh, He is with Paul. Uh, And Paul writes now to reassure them, look, he hasn't forgotten about you. He is deeply concerned and deeply committed to you. He is working hard for you while he is with me. That raises then the question, how do you work hard for the Colossians when you're with Paul? Does he log in to the the email and answer a few church emails for them? Does he prepare the bulletin for them and email it through to the office? How is he working hard for them while he's separated from them? Well, the answer is very simple. He is praying for them. He's praying. That's how he works for them and works with them. He's praying for them. His commitment to them is undiminished. And Paul uh, uses this language here where he says he is always wrestling in prayer for you. If you were here two weeks ago when we looked at the beginning of this chapter, we talked a little bit about prayer, being devoted 
to prayer and why that should be uh, we should see that as an amazing privilege an amazing privilege that we can pray that we have access to the, the throne room of heaven that God is attentive to our words and even more than that Prayer is the medium, the way in which we connect and experience the, the love and presence of God in our lives. Prayer is an amazing privilege that we have. Uh, we also went on to say that prayer should be a priority for us because we are weak uh, and we are needy, both physically, spiritually. And prayer is the means through which God is appointed that his power and help can flow into our lives. Prayer is, should be our, our privilege and passion. It should also be our priority. But Paul is very honest. Uh, Paul is very honest. Prayer is also hard work. It's hard work. Uh, I think many of us know that as an experience. I think there's three reasons where a prayer is hard work. They're there on the screen uh, because we are so easily distracted we are deluded, uh, and that our uh, priorities are often disordered. I would, I, would, I would even suggest, tentatively suggest, I think there has been no more difficult time in human history to be prayerful. It is more difficult to be prayerful today than it has ever been, ever been, because we are so, first, we are being distracted, disturbed and distracted from every angle. I should have brought it with me. Perhaps most, most clearly seen in your phone. Your phone. You pay for your phone, but your phone doesn't work for you. No, it works for the guys in Silicon Valley. There's millions and millions and millions of dollars been invested in the technology that is specifically designed to distract and addict you. That's what your phone is there to do. That's how they make their money. And so we are constantly being distracted by social media, by your emails, your news, the weather, Google, all, all on your phone, all in your appendage, cyborg appendage that we never leave behind. We are more distracted than we've ever been before. And that's why many people take their cue from Jesus himself getting up early, going off alone before he's disturbed and distracted by others to just devote some time to prayer. Perhaps then some of us need to set the alarm clock a little bit earlier, get up to pray, plan to pray. And here's a challenge for you. Before you pray, perhaps even before you eat your breakfast, do not, do not check your phone. See if you can do it. Prayer is difficult because we're so easily distracted. Prayer is difficult because we are so easily deluded. We're so easily deluded. We are richer and more comfortable as a generation than any other generation in history. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? We've got more home comforts and money in the bank than anyone has ever had before. And so if you've got a good job and money in the bank and access to the NHS, or perhaps for, for lots of us, access to private health care, what's the need to pray? 
What's the need to pray? Money can do what prayer does, just easier and faster. Again, money insulates us and it deludes us into thinking we're in control. Into thinking that we can be our own saviors. But also, we can be easily deluded as a church. You know, as we look at the survey at the beginning, you know, number four answer, we are biblical. We are biblical. Um, We believe the truth. We're busy and active and there's lots of people coming, so surely things are going well. And so we don't feel the need to pray. We don't feel the need to pray. Again, we need to be reminded of reality. Here's reality. If you think, even for a moment, if I think even for a moment, that you can keep going, remain faithful, be fruitful for God, all in your own strength, you are tragically, I am tragically deluded. Impossible without the power of God animating Uh, and shaping our lives. We are so easily distracted. We're so easily deluded. And lastly, so easily our priorities uh, are disordered. If you're anything like me, you naturally pray for yourself, don't you? If you ever get round to doing the praying, that is, avoiding the distraction and uh, seeing some need, and you ever do get to praying, we naturally pray about ourselves. We pray about, oh, that... That sniffle, let's pray that doesn't develop into the cold. Uh, Let's pray for the pressures at work. Let's pray for that my my family do okay. Um, We naturally pray for ourselves. Here we see that Epaphras, who's a model for us, is wrestling in prayer for you. His priority uh, is number one for other people, for other people. Um, I think this is just a really helpful uh, challenge for each and every one of us. We see also not only is uh, Epaphras making a priority of praying for other people, he makes a priority of praying not just for the immediate and the physical. I think that's something we gravitate towards. Just pray for people's health. He makes a priority of praying for the eternal and the spiritual, that they will stand firm in their faith, be mature and fully assured. He prays for things that will matter when Jesus comes back again. The challenge is, is that what makes the top priority in our prayers? When we pray for other people, are we praying for the things that will matter when Jesus comes back again? And that's why I think Corporate prayer is incredibly helpful. That's why we have preserved uh, every second Wednesday night, we set aside some time as a church family to pray together, to force us to remember what is true and what is important. Um, perhaps that's not your practice. You don't, you're not involved in that. You find that, find that intimidating. Can I just encourage you to give it a go? Give it a go as you learn the needs in this church family, as you hear other people pray and learn how to do it better, um, as you learn what is important that will help you set your priorities in your own personal prayer, or perhaps get involved in a prayer triplet. Again, another way that you can hold one another accountable and be prayerful. 
Uh, and that is why, uh, as we go into this new year, uh, for the first three Sunday evenings uh, of January, we're going to set aside some time to pray together, to pray for uh, our, our Alpha course that we're running, that people will come and come to faith. Uh, we're going to spend some time praying for our church mission partners one week, praying for our ministries uh, on the third week, because we're desperately needy. They will never be successful unless God empowers and animates and uses our work uh, and their work. My prayer then, as I and we go into the new year, is that we become more like this church. That we see ourselves as accountable and interdependent with one another, part of a family. That we see ourselves together as partners in God's work, playing our part wherever we feel we can, and being prayerful, humbling ourselves before God, but confident that he hears and uses our prayers for our good uh, and his glory. What we're going to do now for the next few minutes is we're going to come and we're going to share this meal together. Uh, And this meal actually in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about it as a symbol of our unity together. These little bits of bread, these little bits of bread, they're all separated. But one, at one point, they were all part of one loaf. They were all part of one loaf. Uh, this is a symbol that while we are individuals, we are all united together. We are all part of something. Uh, and this is a symbol then that was a family meal that we share in as we remember that we have one saviour the Lord Jesus who died for us. We are indwelt by one Holy Spirit and we all call upon one Father together uh, and we say thank you as a church family. That will lead us in a prayer. I'll invite the deacons to come uh, and serve us.